Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today we're talking about biosimilar insulin, its safety, efficacy, what sets it apart from biologic insulin, and when it should be considered for use. Before we meet our guests, I'd like to thank Viatris for making this episode possible through an unrestricted educational grant. Thank you. Joining me today to help us better understand biosimilar insulin is Dr. Earl Hirsch. He is professor of medicine at the UW Medicine Diabetes Institute in Seattle, Washington. I really enjoyed the last time you were on this podcast. Back then, we were talking about Society's Type 1 Diabetes Fellows Conference, and I am so glad to have this opportunity to talk to you again. Thank you for being here, Dr. Hirsch. Great. Thanks to see you, Aaron. So let's start with what is biosimilar insulin, and how is it different from biologic insulin or generic insulin? Let's start at the beginning. We have our reference insulin. Let's just use glargine as an example. Glargine came into the United States in 2001, and that was a branded insulin, like any branded product. It went by the name Lantus. It still goes by the name Lantus, and that is the reference for the other insulins that now are under the rubric of Glargine. Now, we first had a biologic follow-on, and that went by the trade name Basaglar. It has something to do with the way FDA has regulated insulin in general. We also need to keep in mind that insulin is a large molecule. I'm going to pivot for a moment and talk about the difference between large molecules and small molecules because it is relevant when we talk about insulin. As a rule of thumb, large molecules, of course, need to be injectables as opposed to a small molecule. And the reason why this is important is that just manufacturing large molecules is a much more complex process. And whereas we have generic with the small molecules, whether we're talking about thyroid or ACE inhibitors or anti-seizure drugs, we have generics. Technically, you can't have a generic in a large molecule. We actually do now have something called generic Lyspro and generic aspart, and I'm going to come back to that. This is why this is so complicated. Technically, when this nomenclature was developed, you can't have a generic insulin because insulin is a large molecule. And so what we have instead are biosimilars. And a biosimilar you can sort of think of as a generic, but it isn't really because it is so much more difficult for the manufacturer to make. So our first biosimilar with glargine was Basaglar, and it was called a biologic follow-on because as the FDA was developing the rules for what that would mean and how this needs to be more like the reference method, which is Lanthus, the original biologic follow-on molecule such as Basaglar, was not interchangeable. But nevertheless, the whole hope was these biologic molecules and biologic follow-ons like Basaglar would be a significant cost savings to the patient. 
As it turns out, it really wasn't. Just like other drugs, there was negotiations between the PBM, the pharmacy benefit manager, and the pharmaceutical company, and patients would use whichever one the contract benefited the most. But when we first received Basagar, for people who had high deductibles or people without any insurance at all, there really wasn't much of a cost savings, 10 to 15%, if that. Eventually, FDA, under an act from Congress, was able to make the rules for biosimilars, which were also biologics, but eventually biosimilars that had additional regulation that allowed pharmaceutical interchangeability. What this means is that if I write a prescription for Atlantis, the pharmacist, without calling me, without sending a note through my EMR to see if it's okay to switch to this biosimilar glargine, which has interchangeability, they could actually do that without any approval from me. Then we get Semgly. Semgly is also a biosimilar. But what's so interesting about Semgly is that the pharmaceutical company that manufactures Semgly, you can actually purchase this at a cheaper price than Basaglar or a cheaper price than Lantus if you don't have insurance. But it is also, when it came out anyway, competing with Lantus and Basaglar with the PBMs to get the formulary approval. And so what this third drug, Semgly, was doing, it was playing both ends of this complicated spectrum. It was competing with the pharmaceutical companies with the commercial insurance to get the formulary status, but it was also coming in a bit cheaper for people who were underinsured or uninsured. Patients can get Lyspro or Aspart, which is either Humalog or Novolog, in a generic Lyspro or Aspart. But that seems counterintuitive because I just said you can't get generic insulins because they're large molecules. Well, they call it generic, but it actually isn't generic. The insulin is made in the same factory. It just has a different label. It's not branded as Humalog and Novolog, but it is cheaper for the patient. And I think the bottom line is that as time goes on, despite the politicians, there is such a understanding by the American population that insulin should be accessible, that it appears that we are getting better access with more affordable insulin as time goes on, despite all of the complexities that has happened with FDA and with the politicians. And it's my hope within the next few years that despite the politicians, everybody in this country will have access to affordable insulin. That's sort of the bottom line from this very complex and difficult conversation. Complex indeed. What steps have been taken to ensure the safety of biosimilar insulin? All of the steps from FDA looking at safety, both in vitro and in vivo, have been made. Remember, by definition, a biosimilar has to be similar enough to the reference product, no matter which that reference product is, that it can be used 
unit per unit instead. And that includes all of the safety issues, whether it has to do with glucose lowering, how long the insulin will last at room temperature, how it does in heat, and then the more severe concerns, how does it deal with things such as mitogenesis with cells that potentially could cause malignancy, things like that that are done very early in the insulin process. But rest assured, all of these insulins pass all of these safety bars and your clinicians should have absolutely no concern that their patients will have any additional safety issues with biosimilar insulins. So they're safe, but what do we know about the effectiveness of biosimilar insulin? Same issues with effectiveness as safety. I was concerned about this when we first received our first biosimilar insulins, Basaglar and Admalog, but based on reading what the regulatory steps the companies had to go through with these, and then just the fact that the patients were very happy to get less expensive insulin, and now having had experience with this over the last few years, I have zero concerns at all about any of these insulins in terms of efficacy or in terms of safety. So if they're safe, they're effective, who may benefit the most from biosimilar insulin products and what needs to be considered before using them? My feeling is that If you have an insulin that is approved by FDA in the United States, you should feel very safe to use it. And really, at the end of the day, it's whatever insulin you can get the least expensive. There are going to be more and more insulin caps depending on the state one lives in. And if a patient is using an insulin that they haven't used before because it's a biosimilar, the patient should have zero concerns whatsoever if it's a U.S. insulin. Now, the only exception to this is when patients bring in insulins from other countries. At one point, this was a few years ago, I counted over 100 different types of insulin in Russia. I don't think in 2023, too many people in the U.S. are going to go to Russia to get their insulin. But having said that, that's just an example. There are insulins made in other countries that do not go through either the US FDA or the European EMA in terms of efficacy and safety. And those would be the insulins I'd be concerned about. But here in the US, I would not be concerned with any of the insulins if they pass the bar through the US FDA. We've talked a little bit about accessibility with insulin, and we know that the cost of insulin is a barrier for many, although recently we've seen a lot of changes in addressing that barrier. How accessible is biosimilar insulin? The biosimilar insulins are becoming very accessible at any pharmacy in the U.S. You can get it. And I should also point out that even if one lives in a state without Medicaid expansion, one can get inexpensive insulin always at certain pharmacies where one can get both human insulin, NPH regular, and the premix 7030. And now, although I have not seen it yet, I have seen online that Novo Nordisk actually is now producing a Walmart brand. The name of the brand is called Relyon Aspart. So one can get at a relatively inexpensive cost, just like they can the Relyon NPH and regular. 
I don't know what the cost is for the rely on Aspart, which of course is Novolog, but at mm-hmm. least the point is, I think everybody understands that the way our system works is not only dysfunctional, but we can't make it so difficult that patients can't afford their insulin. That is just wrong over a hundred years since the discovery of insulin. And I actually think that the insulin companies understand this, commercial pharmacies understand this. And what we really haven't talked about is how did we get to this place? And I, I will just mention that the real enemy here has not been the pharmaceutical companies. It's been these middlemen where the manufacturers have had no price but to increase the retail price of the insulin so they could put in a higher rebate so they could get the contract. And the whole point of this entire discussion with insulin caps, biosimilars, interchangeables, now new programs with each of the companies to cap insulin, the uh, not-for-profit company, Civica, the whole point here is that the system did not work. The typical system with the PBMs was really wrong for insulin. And quite frankly, the two biggest insulin companies, they're doing just fine with their GLP-1 receptor agonists in the world of diabetes. There's no reason to watch people suffer struggling to get their insulin any longer. And Mm -hmm. I think everybody, except of course the politicians who voted against this, everybody else is in agreement. We've got to make changes. It's not happening immediately overnight, but we do see the winds changing and we do see it very clear that it is becoming easier for people to get their insulin. And and again, my prediction is within the next few years, this particular problem won't be a problem at all. Well, that's a good optimistic outlook. When you think about the winds of change and what's coming in the future, how big a role will biosimilar insulin play in the future of diabetes treatment? It's hard to predict because when the biosimilars were initially discussed, and this was really over a decade ago in Congress, nobody could have seen what was going to happen with the cost of insulin. And the whole idea was to give people more of a choice. But now that we're seeing that the branded insulins, Humalog and Novolog, for example, are going to be for the most part capped for all Americans, what does this mean for biosimilars a decade from now? And especially when you look at a company like Civica that will have a biosimilar insulin, which who knows, maybe the most common form of insulin a decade from now or 20 years from now will be from a not-for-profit company. I can't predict because I don't think anybody could have predicted we would have gotten into the place we are now, but it's been very interesting to see how this all worked. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. We covered a lot of territory and there's still some question marks out there, aren't there? But thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today, Dr. Hirsch. You bet, Aaron. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We're looking forward to bringing you another fascinating dive into the world of endocrinology soon. But first, I have an announcement about the podcast. The Endocrine Society has partnered with Convey Med to have our family of podcasts, 
including the Endocrine News Podcast and our Journal Club Podcast, Endocrine Feedback Loop, featured on their app. If you'd like to listen through the app, be sure to download the Convey Med app and search for Endocrine News Plus. You'll find all of our episodes there. Until next time, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.